Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey there, I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. So today on the show, we are talking about the arts in Baltimore and where they fit into the future of the city, especially post-pandemic. And there is no better place to start the conversation than to uh, than to have Maggie Villegas, uh, who is the executive director of BCAN, the Baltimore Creatives Acceleration Network, join us. Maggie, I am a big fan, and we are so thrilled to have you on board here with Future City. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here to talk to you and, and, and plot some ways we can we can imagine a stronger future for our city together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, and, and to start, can you tell us, uh, tell our listeners about what the Baltimore Creatives Acceleration Network is? Uh, you know, what exactly is the work that you all do and, and how do you all think about the growth of the city in correlation with your growth as well? Absolutely. Uh, so BCAN, or the Baltimore Creatives Acceleration Network, is a 10-year citywide initiative that was launched by the Maryland Institute College of Art in fall of 2017, essentially to foster a stronger and more equitable creative ecosystem and economy here in the city. Um, and we utilize creative entrepreneurship as the, the vehicle to achieve that. Um, so we work in a couple different ways, uh, really working at the ecosystem level, working with different partners and support organizations across Baltimore, ranging from entrepreneurs themselves to CDFIs, uh, art, art accelerators, incubators, different um, different support organizations that can help your business grow and coordinating those resources to provide direct services and support to artists and creative entrepreneurs in the city. Uh, really, we want to get to a place where creatives are equipped with all the tools and knowledge that they are looking for in order to be able to translate their ingenuity into thriving uh, a thriving life uh, for themselves and for and for others in the city as well. And so, and when you think about some of the biggest, some of the biggest challenges that a lot of our creatives and our artists are are are, are facing here in just trying to make a living off of their off of their their joy and their genius, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges that many of our creatives are facing? One of the challenges that we've come up against a lot in our work at BCAN is a or confidence, uh, a crisis of confidence within our understanding of financials as creatives, our understanding and our ability to articulate the value that we bring to the world um, and being able to really lean into and self-advocate for that value. Um, so a lot of it is actually a mindset shift. Um, so how do we understand and demystify what, what the real cost of being a creative and creating work is so that we can articulate that story and, and push for investment in the work that we produce and the value that we bring to the world. Mm. 
Well, and I love that you were talking about that, that, that you frame it out in that way, because, you know, oftentimes when people think about what becomes the future, the future build of what Baltimore is and what Baltimore could be, it's important to make sure that this element is a major part and a major fulcrum of, of, of what we're speaking about. You know, I, I know you're on uh, Mayor Scott's transition team as uh, Arts and Culture Committee and in full disclosure, I was also a member of the, uh, of, of the steering committee. Why do you think that it is that important for artists to participate in the envisioning uh, process for the future of this city, that the arts really serve as a major fulcrum for how we're thinking about our larger growth and expansion? Artists are seers. You know, we are visionaries. We we are the storytellers of our society, and we're able to interpret the world in a way that that helps us get closer to the to the root of of any problem we're trying to solve, of understanding how we operate as a society. And so, I think when we, whenever we're talking about visioning, I I absolutely believe that artists are critical to that work. I also find that, especially locally, artists tend to be multifaceted and interconnected in ways that really transcend different um, different worlds uh, within the city itself. So, you know, artists are not just creating beautiful imagery. They're also teachers. They're also... Uh, they're also healers that people turn to when they're processing trauma and, and, and coming out on the other side of it. You know, of course, uh, the work that we're doing, they're business owners. They're actually cre- creating jobs. They're creating jobs for themselves as self-employed artists, uh, but they're also creating jobs for other people. Um, so they just intersect with a lot of different aspects of our city and are able to draw those connections and, and start to start to really come up with more imagination, imaginative ways to, to process and, and solve for some of the challenges that we face in, as a city. Well, we talk about challenges. I feel like, you know, one of the biggest challenges uh, is, is how do we think about what this recovery from COVID actually looks like? Um, you know, we saw industries rot during this time and, and arguably there is no industry that took it on the chin harder than how we're thinking about what happened to our artists. Because, you know, part of the beauty of the arts is that you have an ability and a capacity to be able to share it uh, in live and in living color with, uh, with an audience. And, and we lost that. And so you were part of the Baltimore Artists Emergency Relief Fund Coalition, which gave many grants to artists who were living in Baltimore City. Can you talk about the different ways that you saw artists supporting each other during the COVID-19 pandemic? Artists supporting each other as a as a solidarity mechanism and a survival mechanism is definitely not new to the pandemic. Um, the reality is that artists have been undervalued long before the COVID nineteen crisis hit us, um, and certainly that's the case. Um, that's the case when it did hit. Of course, it rocked the community. We saw the performing arts community across the world, essentially zero out their income uh, overnight um, and with no no end in sight, right? So we definitely saw artists step up in the ways that, that artists are used to supporting each other to get through day to day, but really understanding the, the severity and the, and the um, 
the impacts uh, of this pandemic by by living through it. So they stepped up to really create these um, uh, mutual aid platforms and um, and became philanthropists themselves. Uh, so one of our collaborators and really inspiration as part of the uh, Baltimore Artist Emergency Relief Fund. You know, we worked with Alana Nicole Davis, who created a a relief fund for the for the region really just operating off of cash app uh and to transfer small mini grants uh within the community immediately uh sharina christmas who's also a colleague and mm-hmm. and uh or co-organizer for bcan uh, also created an emergency relief fund through her necessary tomorrow's platform um and so re- really what we saw was artists stepping up um immediately uh, without waiting for philanthropy, without waiting for government support, they knew that they would be likely left out of the solutions that were proposed uh, for for supporting artists. We, you know, at BCAN really were turning to each other and saying, okay, it's great for artists to be able to support each other, but we also need to uh, advocate, you know, as artists to unlock additional resources to get the city to start to organize um, in order to get additional dollars into the mix uh, to provide that immediate gap support. Because we, you know, of course, our, many artists are sole proprietors, so they're not necessarily, they were not eligible to receive unemployment benefits very early on during the pandemic. We anticipated a lot of these barriers. Um, and so we organized as a coalition of, I want to say it was about 20 different um, independent artists, uh, art support organizers to, to raise money from philanthropy to provide additional in artist emergency relief uh, into the city. And we were able to deploy uh, over 160,000 within the first two months of the pandemic. And we did see um, the the economic impacts uh, numbers on the back end through the application process, we were able to see really quickly, you know, we had well over 600 artists apply to that fund. Um, it was, you know, a total, uh, total income losses reported within that, just that first two month window when we were open was 3.2 million uh, in Baltimore City alone. And so we, you know, we could see really clearly, and it was evident also in terms of the types of artists that were applying to the fund, you know, there were musicians, folks in the entertainment industry, uh, and that was, that was about, you know, about 65, 70% of the, of the artists that applied. Well, you know, and I and I and I I tell you one of the things that's really interesting, and I have a question about this, is the role that philanthropy is playing in that. Um, you know, because I think about it, where uh, you know, philanthropy has a lot of different avenues and approaches in which it in which it you know applies support. Uh, but one of the most important places that people can can provide that is actually within the arts. Uh, how when pe- when a person's saying, okay, I'm I'm looking to be philanthropic, explain to me, you know, how the arts can fit into a larger portfolio of giving. What what response do you give them? So I mean, I think that when you're supporting the arts, you're you know, I think sometimes there's this box that we create around what it means to support the arts, um, and I think this goes back to also why I think it's important to engage artists in in any kind of you know city kind of city government planning processes. It, you know, the artists add a lot of value beyond the actual 
um, you know, product or service that you're thinking about them adding. And it's not just a painting, um, but it is all of the all of the people that see themselves in the painting, right? It's all of the and and what that changes within you as a as a person. Um, it's also the processes that artists can use at times to be able to produce the work that they do. A lot of times they're organizing. Uh, they're not just a lot of artists when they're producing work, they're not just uh, creating the work on in a vacuum, you know, they're working with a, you know, if you think about a photo shoot, right. Uh, there who like, you think about the economic impact of that. Uh, there, there's the camera purchases, there's the makeup artists, there's the, the wardrobe and stylists, you have the lighting, you have the actual facility that it's operating in. And then who's actually um, doing the, the, you know, publication of, of whatever that image is and what, what medium does that take? And so there are all of these additional um, like transactions that happen, whether they're whether they're on paper <laughs> or yeah. or happening sort of, you know, just among artists themselves through trade or, or through cash transactions. Like there are these ripple effects, um, both financially as well as from from a human perspective of supporting of supporting the arts and supporting creatives at large. Um, and we actually lean into the, the creative lens of the creative term more so even than we do the artist term at times, because we want to make sure that people are thinking not just about um, their own perspective of what art means and their own aesthetic perspectives, but also thinking about other, other sort of media that are culturally rooted. Um, you know, what are, what are, what is the, what is the sort of like cultural legacy and, and, and creative energy that is within like the history of a culinary practice. Um, and so, so we actually pr uh, intentionally use the term creative when we talk about the work that we do at BCAN. Well, I can I tell you right now the the work that you the work that you all are doing uh, is is not just important but also has been expanding and has been industry leading uh, and so to 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 hear more about it and to see it kind of played out in the larger framework of where the city is going uh, and where the region is going is really exciting. So uh, you know I'm I'm Westmore and you've been listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR and I've been speaking with Maggie Vijegas. Uh, who is the executive director of BCAN, the Baltimore Creatives Acceleration Network. Maggie, thank you so much for your work and thank you for joining us on Future City. Thank you for having me and thank you for creating. Oh, bless you. Bless you and thank you. Thank you. Now we have to take a brief break, but please do not go away because when we come back, we'll talk about the Maryland Film Festival, now in its second year of virtual screenings. That's all coming up right after the break. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. So today on the show, we are talking about the future of the arts here in Baltimore, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Sandra Gibson, who's the executive director of the Maryland Film Festival, which is happening now through tomorrow night. Sandra, thank you so much for joining us on Future City. Thank you, Wes. I'm so pleased to be here to join you to talk about not only my favorite subject, but my life's work and career, the arts and Baltimore. 
Well, it has had a remarkable impact on our on our community, and so we thank you. And and you know, and and let's actually go into the festival because last year the film festival went all virtual, and this year it's mostly virtual, but there are a few in person events as well. What is it like been organizing? What is it like been organ for you organizing these film festivals uh, and your life's work during this pandemic? You know, it's been wild, and you really have to be agile, pivot. And you have to reimagine. I think that's the the silver lining in all of this. It's given us the time and opportunity, not much time, to reimagine what we're doing and really think about our impact in the community. So what is front and center for us is serving Baltimore, reaching into the community. So how do you do that with all this technology when people are on screens all day? We had to really rethink how we were approaching this work in independent film. And what it was for all of us was about connecting people to narrative, connecting people to story helping them to unearth their own stories and making that hard connection to fight the social isolation, keep people connected with ideas, perspectives, and really starting to think about the future. Mm. And one of the things I, I love too is, you know, it's talking about that with all these things, this is not just about the actual film that's being created, but it really is also just about what are the what are the bigger takeaways that we're hoping that people have? And also one thing you you touched on as well is that this is not just about the films themselves or the screenings. It's also it is about the panels and the and the and the gatherings and the conversations. How have you been able to translate some of those social aspects of the film festival into a virtual format so that it has the same amount of impact? Well, you know, we went virtual, as you said, last year, and it we we quickly got a platform together that took care of all the intellectual property and, and had live streaming capabilities because we still wanted to bring filmmakers in and audiences in. So we had 150 filmmakers. We'd never even bring that many into Baltimore each year, engaging with audiences in live chats. Uh, we tried to really change the panel discussion so it wasn't the regular Q&A, give people a way in to the movie a way into the artist's thinking and why they made the film, how it came about, uh, the ideas, the stories, what they're thinking about, what projects they're working on in the future. So we use the technology to really bring people together. Uh, virtual parties. I had a dance cam in my kitchen for one of the virtual parties that we, we streamed live from the parkway or from other locations. So we just used the technology for what it could bring, but central to it was that trying to create a sense of community, uh, and bring people together to experience this work and to be able to talk about it. Mm. And, and that's it. I think you know you've also uh, taken real leadership and shown that you know what it means to 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 broaden that audience. I mean, there is the film festival does have a physical space, which is you know the Parkway Theater. But but when we think about ways to actually be able to reinvent space and also the the products, the content that is coming out of this time. How do you think about how those two things have correlated and translated differently, where it's both about you know being able to use assets like the Parkway Theater, but then also it's how do you rethink the content that's being produced right now in such a really, uh, in such a special way? You know, and that, that's such a great question because the industry itself and the independent film movement is upside down. There's a big disruption in the pipeline of films, how they get distributed. There's a lot of moving around right now, things going online, immediately skipping the in-theater experience. And, and for us, it, it, it really was about this engagement. What, what can we communicate with our audiences and find out 
what they're thinking about, what they want to see, what they're concerned about. That was one approach, doing a more themed and series approach. We also did a lot of events. So the city of Baltimore had a, a fair housing theater festival they were going to do last August. It was the Office of um, Equity and Civil Rights. They came to us and said, we're going to do a film festival. We've chosen some films. We've got HUD involved. It's a conversation about fair housing. We want to communicate through the films, through the conversations about this. Well, we produced it on the platform. And what the technology allowed us to do was reach into the community in ways that get across some of the barriers. Uh, we even had to think about the barrier of internet. So any conversations where you couldn't get to the live stream, we went to YouTube, we went to Facebook, we know people are on mobile phones. So it's thinking through where are people in their daily lives? What are they really contemplating right now? What are, what are the pressure points? Uh, and what can we do to, to address that, relieve it, and open up the channels of communication? Mm. Uh, so it's been a really amazing journey. Artists, of course, are creating all kinds of work. So we've uh, worked with a lot of smaller distributors because a lot of the larger studios have delayed releases, and we don't do a lot of those films anyway. So we've had a lot more documentaries, a lot more conversations with the subjects of the film. Uh, we had Chase Brexton in a couple months ago uh, to talk about a special documentary that we were showing. We, we did uh, um, with Barks um, another documentary film about, about 100,000 dogs in Turkey. And in, in Turkey, you're not allowed mm. the dogs that are stray. You can't feed them. You can't house them. They're stray on the street. And so we talked to Barks, which is an animal shelter, and did a little fundraiser for them. So it's really allowed us to join with new kinds of partners. We've even turned the parkway into a TV film studio. So the Choral Arts Society filmed socially distanced performances for their audiences that aired on ABC Station 7 in December. They're coming mm. back again in another month. We did a beautiful event with Orchids. They had newly composed some music connected to some lyrics in celebration of the women's suffrage movement. And in December, we mounted this evening. They talked about the youngest uh, person was 11. They talked about their hopes for the future in light of what was happening with the suffrage movement and with Black women in that movement. So we found these ways to make new hard connections. Um, and I hope we're going to be outdoors in the summer and fall and in the community. Uh, we move the brand. I mean, the, the Parkway is about, and the Maryland Film Festival is about bringing people together. And now we say in imaginative ways. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Do, do you remember the, the film or the documentary that first made you fall in love with filmmaking? Wow. I had, there are just so many films. Wow. I have to really, I have to think about that because, you know, I, I, I'm old West. So I grew up <laughs> with a lot of these things. We had one movie theater in town. I actually graduated high school in that movie theater. The Lake Theater is now closed as a movie palace. And we didn't go very often. I think one of the earliest things I went to, this will date me, was one of the first Beatles films and Sound of Music. Mm. Um, so it was those kinds of big screen films. And then everything else we watched when it came on television at home as a family. Wow. So it was a family 
event for us to sit and watch a movie. My parents, you know, were were pretty conservative. So we watched the Disney films. As we got older, we were, you know, watching whatever, whatever they didn't know about. <laughs> mm. um, but I'm I'm thinking of the Sound of Music, early Beatles films. But what captured my heart for me was documentaries. It it really I'm a I'm a nonfiction reader and I am just so drawn in to these real life stories. Yes. Uh, that, that has been through my entire life. And I'm just trying to think of one of the first documentaries uh, I saw that struck me. And there's so much out there now, but I think that's where my heart is. And I love all the experimental work. So I uh, worked at American Film Institute early, early in my career in the eighties in Los Angeles. Uh, Jeannie Furstenberg was there and she bought a Catholic college the nuns had been forced out of business by the archdiocese because they were too progressive. They were mm. the, the nuns of the Immaculate Heart. They have a high school that still goes very strong. So she bought us the seven acre campus on a bond issue and I was hired to run it. And I brought everything from Washington DC that wasn't already in Los Angeles. And in, in, in the course of that time, I ran a subgrant for the National Endowment for the Arts, the Independent Filmmaker Program and funded filmmakers like Charles Burnett um, and, and uh, just a wide array of filmmakers that were coming up uh, in the late 80s and early 90s before the culture wars started. And so I'm a big fan of filmmakers who explore the boundaries of the form uh, to communicate their ideas and perspectives. So that's sort of where I live <laughs> mm. when it comes to film, but, but I, I have a pretty big appetite when it comes to film, and I'm a musician and musicologist by an ethnomusicologist by trade. So I have a very big appetite. There's uh, almost nothing I won't see except, except the sort of horror flicks that have um, lots of blood and guts. That's not my <laughs> <laughs> If there's a chainsaw, I'm not interested. But if it's far flung, uh, if it's uh, foreign, and I didn't have the chance to see many films from outside the United States growing up until I was in grad school in Chicago. Mm. Uh, I was in one of the great film centers and then going to Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, so that's that's my other passion is um, is international films. And I'm hoping we can do more of that um, at the Parkway, along with bringing uh, an ever diverse array of voices. Yes. Uh, because the stories are everywhere. I, I do want to mention one documentary that is in this sort of not totally experimental realm, but that, that really moves from the tradition of documentary filmmaking that I really have been wild about this year. And it's time. Garrett Bradley's time mm. uh, had an Academy Award nomination. It is a brilliant film about how families do time when their loved ones are incarcerated. And just, a, a, I was so drawn in. And so movies um, have that ability to draw us in. They have that ability to ignite. They have that ability to stir empathy. Uh, they have that amazing ability to motivate change, you know, and awaken awareness. That's right. That's, and it's such a democratizing form. It's such an open form and way to reach people. That's what I love about it. 
And I love that you framed it out that way because it, it is right. It changes narratives. It changes mindsets. It changes directions. Uh, it changes policies. Um, and, and, and it also changes economies. And, and you know, yeah. I guess, you know, my, you know, my, my, my final question for you is actually about the economics behind this. So, like, you know, Maryland has a film industry. Um, it, it's not as robust as a state like a Georgia is, for example, um, or even other other places overseas like a Vancouver. So what do you think that the state could do to jumpstart the film industry here? How can and should people be thinking about not just that the fact that the film industry can tell great stories and, 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 and really shape hearts and minds, but also it's an economic jolt to how a state can see and view itself? Well, the arts and film in particular are an economic engine. And, and I'm, I'm a, not only a big believer, the facts and research uh, really tell that story very nicely. And that story has been told in Maryland. What I'd love to see, and Jack Gerbis at the film office and all my colleagues at state level know this, Jed Dietz, our founder, has been working on this for a long time. I would love to see the state lift the caps on the tax credits. Mm. Uh, we have a $20 million tax credit, and I know that's a tough thing to talk about in this state. It's hard to make the case for it, but that's what's happened in Georgia. That's what happened in North Carolina. Uh, really let this flourish just for a couple of years. Let it take hold. You know, we are two and three crews deep in Baltimore. And most of those crew members have to go elsewhere to get their work, to, to really provide for their families. There's incredible mm -hmm. talent here. And there's definitely an industry. Uh, there are films we double for DC. Uh, it's such a great place. We have eight schools. Uh, Morgan State's going to blow up their cinematic program. You've got Hopkins, you have Micah, you have Loyola, you have Towson has a big program, Stevenson, um, uh, UMBC. So there's plenty, there's wide angle lens. You've got Root Branch, there's youth training. And what I'm doing right now, I've been talking to Sammy Hoy at Maryland Institute College of Art and his team and our team and Morgan State. Where do we fill in the gaps? in training, where do we fill in the gaps in certification? And can we build out the infrastructure? Can we make this the place in the mid-Atlantic? Mm. You know, Morgan State has the largest soundstage in the mid-Atlantic. It's mm. not being used as a soundstage right now. I think it, it has a future, um, but there's a lot that could be done, but I think we need to just open this up more, open up the channels, uh, expand the tax credit. We're showing a film we opened with it last night, Strawberry Mansion. It was a Saul Zanz Innovation Fund fellowship winner to get it from screen, uh, from, from script to screen. It also got one of the small Maryland tax credits. So those tax credits are allocated, but most of the time, one production at Showtime, one production of HBO takes up most of the credit. We need more. Yes. We really need more. And, and I, we, the talent is here, and I think this could be such an economic driver. And I would love to see Baltimore lead with arts and culture. Amen. Not just value it, lead, invest. Amen. The return is enormous for the investment that is so small and so specific uh, and really generates 11, 12, 13 fold. 
Well, I've been speaking with Sandra Gibson, the executive director of the Maryland Film Festival, which is running through tomorrow night. Sandra, thank you so much for not just joining us on Future City, but also just for your leadership as a whole in helping to bring the arts and stories and an improvement to our community. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Wes, for what you do and for, uh, for doing this show. I'm so pleased to have been part of it. Thank you. Now we have to take a brief break, but please don't go away because when we come back, we'll talk to Mighty Mark, a music producer, Baltimore club music DJ, and also one of the leaders of the new film called Dark City Beneath the Beat. We'll be right back. Welcome back, I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City right here on 88.1 WYPR. So today on the show, we're talking about the future of the art scene here in Baltimore. And to close out today, we're talking to a musician rooted in an art form, born right here in the city of Baltimore, Baltimore club music, and we are honored to have none other than Mighty Mark, who is a music producer, who is the music supervisor of the film Dark City Beneath the Beat, which was directed by TT. The artist is now available now on Netflix. Mighty Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on Future City. What up, what up, what up, what up, what up? Man, so happy to have you here, man. So happy to have you here. So like, so first for our listeners, so tell us about Dark City Beneath the Beat. What can people expect from this film? Dark City Beneath the Beat, I would say it's like a Baltimore club musical as well. So it's not your typical talking head documentary where it talks about the history of club, where it started, et cetera. It's really just like sound clips with dancing and different scenes in the city. It's a whole actually experience and from the beginning um, to the end. Um, but um, Baltimore club music is the soundtrack to the actually film. Um, majority of the music has been produced by me. That's actually in the film. And it just tells stories of local dancers, local producers, local musicians, and um, how they struggle or how they adapt to survive in this climate as well. So so for those who might not be as familiar, see, I know I, I came up on Baltimore club music, but for those who are listening, like, okay, so what exactly is Baltimore club music? What does it sound like? You know, what, how, how does the beat go? What are its roots? What do you say to someone who is not as familiar with Baltimore club music about what it is? Yes, yes, definitely. I would definitely let uh, a newcomer to the scene know that Baltimore is raw, is gritty, is unperfected, is fast-paced, is mm. Is repetitive vocal chops, repetitive loops and breaks. But when you hear it, it's going to make you want to dance. If you're familiar with Miami bass or like old school Chicago house, you blend the two, add some hip hop into it. Um, I would say Baltimore club music is kind of one of the, the most hip hop forms of EDM or that lane as well. But it's just raw and, and, and gritty and and you can listen to it on Spotify. You can listen to it on Apple Music, whatever streaming service you you prefer. But the best way, hopefully after this pandemic, is hearing Baltimore club music in the clubs where you can really get that feeling, that bass shaking, the sweat dripping, et cetera. I, I'm t- I, I, I love your description of Baltimore club music because it is, it, it is raw, it's fast paced, it's unfinished. 
it's like you can hear a whole bunch of musical instruments in it and also hear a bunch of uh, a whole bunch of musical instruments that aren't intended to be musical instruments inside of it. It's a beautiful, beautiful form. It's a beautiful music form. And But why did you think it was important to document the music scene here in Baltimore? Why, why was it important to make sure that the world really understands the breadth of the music scene here? Definitely, definitely. It's extremely important because Baltimore club music have a special special place in a lot of producers' hearts from producers like Pharrell, Death mentioned it, you know, producers like Diplo. It's really beloved underground around the world. And when I started making club music heavy, like 2009, 2010, the only true way to really get like the good club music is that you had to know the DJ. You had to go up to the DJ and they had to get you a CD. But when I started at club music, I started putting club music on SoundCloud um, as well. And college just started calling me to book me. I wasn't even DJing at the time. Hey, we want you to come to our school and play some of your music. And, um, Around that same time, I started working with TT the artist, and um, she graduated from Micah uh, with a degree in fine arts as well. Um, so she's real good in visuals and artistic um, storytelling, in addition to being an artist. And me and her teamed up and just thought, you know what, we need to capture this as well. And she um, she applied for some grants. Um, I, I I linked it in with a lot of people in the community. She built relationships herself, and 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 yeah, we've been doing this for like ten years. We never knew it was going to. Um, Easter Ray was going to pick it up and be on Netflix but it's definitely um, a story to be told and not even just with club music to shed a light in the scene and to shed some hope in the scene um, it's been a rough year with venues and stuff shutting down um, but even with just this film just the energy on social media the energy in my inbox and um, I'm, I'm not presuming I might have this number wrong it might be more it might be probably a little bit more but I, I presume we done had over 100 different local musicians, artists, um, um, actually um, designers, videographers, et cetera, featured in the film. Um, so this is a big look for all of them. So it's really just shedding light on Baltimore Club, but in the Baltimore music scene and to the Baltimore music scene in general. But you, but, and, and you just bring up a really good point because we're talking about a scene that, that, um, that has a long history, has a long following, means a lot to this city. Uh, but, we also know that the origins, the, the 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 places where that music is most enjoyed is inside the club, right? Like the part of the beauty of the Baltimore club scene is this idea of it's not just about you can just sit in your home and listen to it, but it's about you being around a lot of people and dancing and sweating and all that. Um, how has COVID-19 affected the way that local artists uh, are creating and performing their music? How has it changed the way that music gets out to folks? And how have you seen artists and musicians supporting each other during this time? It's been a huge, it's been a huge like roadblock or per se in terms of promoting music the way you would used to or the way local musicians would used to promote music per se. Um, but it's also been a time for innovation um, as well too. So like Baltimore is an innovative city. Like they make something out of nothing um, as well. Um, so like venues like the Crown, venues like like the wind-up space gone, but that whole area, the Metro Gallery, all that area as well was really was really like a catalyst for us to go play our new club tracks and have weekly events or monthly events, et cetera. Um, 
But a lot of artists have been doing live streams. Um, a lot of different artists have been interacting with their um, online fan base in a different way, even if they're not performing, just engaging um, with that actually fan base as well. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have been doing um, virtual performances, the whole DJ scene and hopped on doing live streams on Facebook. So we've really adapted to that live um, to that live environment. And in terms of like the actual dancers, the, I think the dancers kind of been elevating more during the pandemic um, than anything. Because during the pandemic, the blow up of TikTok has been happening around the same time. So you mm. have a lot of Baltimore club dancers on TikTok going viral. Um, I have a song with TSU Terry and TT called Roll Call, where um, the dancer TSU Terry um, shouts out the different Baltimore club dancers. And that's kind of going viral right now. And I'm not 100% sure if it would have had the same effect pre-pandemic. Probably still would have did good, but people were in that house looking for something to do. Like, well, let me set my camera on my desk and let me see if I can do the chariot here or the crazy leg and the SpongeBob. So Baltimore, the one thing about Baltimore, we'll make something out of nothing. All of these different social um, outlets actually um, matter. And it's a different way to engage directly with your fan base and directly with your community um, mm. as well. Um, so all of these are extremely um, actually important. Um, TikTok, a couple of DJs going on, actually Twitch, even an Instagram live um, actually features as well, um, too. So all of these have been extremely important and just just us figuring out a way um, to navigate to navigate monetize directly or indirectly and and just really be able to like take advantage of these new avenues because um, I was talking to somebody the other day well I did a live performance yesterday <laughs> that's going to be for uh, July 4th for the Cherry Hill Arts and Music Festival but we recorded some yesterday um, mm-hmm. and just talking about how Artscape was a big has been gone for two years and it's a big outlet how can we make a virtual escape you know or something like it or a virtual airframe so stuff like that so it's really good to learn um the technology the cameras the audio it's a lot but i think baltimore be doing a great job well be, actually i want to stay on this beat that you're talking about here about the uh the cherry hill arts and music festival um because that's going to be coming up uh can you talk about what that festival means for cherry hill and what can people expect from this year's festival well the festival was a big thing and that one thing currently they're not they still not allowing us to do outside the city still not um allowing us to do outside events so it's still going to be virtual this year hopefully next year we can swing it back up and um and actually make it you know outside again but it's still very important to the community because in my opinion i'm actually from charlie so i might be a little bit biased but i don't think uh when it comes to south baltimore they may not get the same um recognition or outlets as west baltimore or you know east baltimore like middle branch park is a beautiful park right on the water we have under armor right around the corner as well um so south baltimore is a very going to be a very important area in terms of um, consumers in the Baltimore area, right next to downtown, right next to casino, to the casino. And with the Cherry Hill Arts and Music Festival, we're basically claiming this area as ours before it comes and get taken over. Like, hey, Cherry Hill has arts here. 
Cherry Hill has talent here. Um, the, a big thing about the Cherry Hill Austin Music Festival is that we do have artists from Cherry Hill on the stage, but it's also a, a big age range. So you might have artists that's their first time performing on the stage. You might have artists like me that's been doing it for over 10 years. You might have elder artists that might be in their 40s and 50s versus where some of the other festivals you might just see, you know, they might just go reach out to the hottest local MC and then maybe get a DJ and that's it. We try to make that we try to make the age range a little bit different at the Cherry Hill Awesome Music Festival. Um uh, but it will be um it will be virtual. It will be dope. We always try to put knowledge and um and a youth resiliency institute which helps out with that. I always try to put knowledge and um learning within the festival as well. But um July 4th is gonna be dope. Well, it is going to be amazing, and I know we, we, we all are looking forward to it. We're all looking for a way and a space to continue celebrating the work. And, and, you, know, and, I, and I, you know, one more question for you is that when people know you and know your story and know your impact, uh, it's powerful and it's empowering for our youth. It's powerful and empowering for our artists. You know, you've been making music since you were young. Uh, what do you think that the young musicians, the artists, the dancers, all the other creatives in Baltimore need uh, to most be able to thrive in Baltimore? Because a lot of times people think, well, for people to go out and really do big things, they have to leave the area. What do you say to that? And what do you think that they, that all of our young creators are most going to need to be able to build, grow in Baltimore and represent Baltimore the way that you do? Definitely. I in my opinion, I think you just need to stay focused and learn how to be self, self-sufficient um, as well. Uh, but knowledge is key. Um, sometimes it's not about making like 20 beats a day. It's about making one beat, but then like going to Barnes and Nobles and picking up a book on music business um, as well. Because you really don't have to like uproot from actually um Baltimore. Of course you have to travel, but just really um really taking the time to invest in yourself and, and actually learn. I started off making beats on a busted Windows XP laptop. I, I actually worked at Subway. Um, I was cool with the owner. He funded my check early. I got me a little drum pad. I got me a better computer. Um you have to invest in yourself and there are resources out there, there are grants and stuff out there, but it doesn't take, it doesn't take a lot. Um, just really, it's so much stuff on YouTube now to learn about, even me learn about recording myself. I didn't start off recording myself or like recording visuals and stuff like that. Uh, but really learning, learning is key and treat others the way that you want to be I'm actually treated like I always I'm always nice to people. I'm always trying to be respectful um, as well. And even when you don't have a lot of money in your pocket to purchase things, um, keep your word. If you say you're going to um, be somewhere, be there. If you say you're going to do an interview, try to be on time. Um, if you're going to perform a show, get there early. You've never seen me late for any show that I've ever done. I'm 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 there early. I'm there to try to see the opener. I'm there to try to network with the people where's the bar. You know, just just treat everyone the way you will be treated. And and in my life, it, it, it's gonna turn out okay for me. 
<laughs> it, it, it is uh it is turned out more than okay and uh but the biggest beneficiary of it, beneficiary of it has been us so uh so i've been speaking with mighty mark he's a baltimore club music producer and is the music supervisor for the film dark city beneath the beat mighty mark we are so grateful for you and thank you so much for joining us on future city thank you so much anytime before we leave, I want to, as always, leave you with a few thoughts about this show. And for decades, we as a society have seen and endured a larger questioning of the importance of the arts as a part of curriculum and, frankly, as a fulcrum of society. Cuts to its applications or to its school funding, cuts to budgets for teachers and facilities in which the arts thrive. But our arts are not an add-on. They're not an elective. They are a heartbeat of all the things that make life so interesting and compelling and that makes communities so lively and united, that make people so full and so invigorated. Artists like Cab Calloway, Billie Holiday, and Edgar Allan Poe have paved the way for artists like Chris Wilson, Devin Allen, Dee Watkins, Kondwani Fidel, and Aaron Maben. Our community is better and stronger because Baltimore is a place where the arts thrive. And our future city will be one where a growing art scene will happen with the larger growth of the city at large. They will happen together. And that is going to be important. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback. And you can email us your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and search for Future City. Future City airs here on WYPR on the fourth Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m., and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.